for people who want to have a seat at the table and make those decisions. I think for me, that's at least where I'm seeing myself now is I want to be able to sit at that table and have a little bit more of a say in how these practices are developed. Because I think the biggest frustrations that I see in kind of these big, you know, corporate like scenarios is that loss of autonomy. REIs, everybody's trying to hire them. You're probably trying to hire them. Everybody wants to get a associate doc or a someone out of fellowship and they're in short supply. So I talked to three of them today and they're already in conversations with potential employers. They're, they've just started their second year. They come from different parts of the country. I'm going to let them introduce themselves in terms of where they've studied. It's Dr. Victoria Jang, Dr. Zoran Pavlovich, Dr. Megan Sachs. And we talk about how important being active as a fellow is and how important being active as a recruiting physician is in order to, to tap into this rare supply. We talk about how important partnership is to them or not as much. We talk about how important academics are to them or not as much. Politics, advocacy, the things that they're paying attention to. Uh, when they are interested in partnership, I press them about, okay, what are you expecting to put forth? What are you expecting to be accountable for in order to have that level of autonomy and that level of, of share of the, the, the product, the company, and the practice? So uh, this is not meant to be confused with data. This is These are anecdotes, but I'm introducing you to three sharp fellows who are active, who are plugged in. And knowing people like this helps you get in touch with more folks like them and knowing what they're paying attention to can give you a recruiting advantage. So I hope you take advantage of that. And I hope you enjoy this conversation with three REI fellows about what they want out of the practice that they end up joining and what they want out of their careers in terms of partnering with other companies in the fertility. Doctors Sachs, Pavlovich, Jang, Welcome all of you to the Inside Reproductive Health Show, Meg, Zoran, Victoria. It's good to have you. Thanks for having us, Griffin. This is great. Zoran, did I did I just mess up your last name? Even though you told me right before we started recording, is it Pavlovich? No, Pavlovich. But you're you're close. You know, got Zoran at least. That 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 that's a tough one. That's why I go tell people I'm Doctor Z instead of my last name. (laughs) Can it? might be useful for them. Uh, So I have three REI fellows on because you're the coveted REI fellows and not, not you three specifically, although you three specifically are starting to make a little bit of a, of name for yourself, which is interesting. Meg was just mentioned in a podcast that I recorded earlier today. I'm on the board for the association of reproductive managers, a subgroup with in ASRM and, uh, there was some sort of programming that we were talking about for younger docs or fellows. And the three of you were mentioned because of the role that you had at ASRM. So, uh, but no, I mean, REI fellows are coveted and, uh, I don't like to do man on the street interviews, meaning like, I don't like to have anecdotes be representative of a population. I don't have a ton of data necessarily, but it is kind of useful to at least it's, it's at least somewhat if taken with a grain of salt to go through uh, some of your experiences and 
your aspirations and what you want to accomplish because people want to recruit you, not just the three of you, but the 100 and however many, 120 or so, 130, 140 uh, fellows that are out there and uh, and that all listen to this show religiously. So we're going to do that. Um, so each of you just want to give a little bit of background of, of where you are, of, of what year you are, what, where you're at fellowship and, uh, and let's just start with that. Sure. I can, um, I can go ahead. Uh, my name is Victoria Jang. I am originally from Atlanta, Georgia. Um, I went to Emory undergrad and majored in chemistry and biology, which is with a focus on organic bio, uh, organic chemistry. Um, then I went to Wake Forest for medical school, um, Emory for residency. And now I am the second year fellow at Massachusetts General Hospital. Meg. Sounds good. Happy to be here. Thanks for having us again, Griffin. Class of 2024 uh, coming around the bend. Uh, my name's Meg Sachs. I grew up in Michigan, huge Michigan Wolverine fan, went there for undergrad and yet somehow married a Buckeye against all of my family's wishes. That's <laughs> gross. It is gross. <laughs> let me tell you. Um, I studied neuroscience and then went to Rush Medical College in Chicago for med school and then matched at University of Cincinnati for OBGYN residency, where I stayed on as an REI fellow and I'm currently a second year. Um, I'm very interested in patient advocacy, oncofertility, and education. I work both at via different initiatives at ACOG and CREOG, and I'm hoping to continue a career in medical education. Yeah, Meg is our advocacy queen. Yeah. <laughs> you got to be when you live in Ohio. Yeah. Got to be. Oh, we're going to have to talk about some of that then. Wh what about you, Zoran? Yeah, I'm happy to be here, Griffin. Thanks for having me on the show as well. Uh, my name is Zoran Pavlovich. I'm a second-year fellow at the University of South Florida in Tampa, where I split my training between surgery at Tampa General and also Shady Grove Fertility for the IVF part. Uh, I'm originally from Chicago, uh, and I went to uh, residency in Chicago, and then college was at Creighton in Omaha, Nebraska. So kind of been a little bit of everywhere. Um and I came back here to Florida because I also did my medical school here at UCF. So now UCF to USF, um, enjoying the weather. And it's, it's, you know, 90 degrees and super hot right now, but I'm glad to be here. And our you big all, focuses are down. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. You all just started second year. I'll just start yeah. second year. Right. 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 So have any of you uh, looked at employment agreements yet? Have any of you been in conversations with people about, you know, I, I should say later conversations with people about where you're going to end up after fellowship? Well, I, I will say, yeah. oh, go ahead. No, you go ahead. We should go first. Oh, well, I guess I will say, you know, I think one thing that's been really terrifying is, is that the employment kind of timeline has very much moved to so early in our fellowship. So as you're trying to grasp, like, how do I be a human? How do I be a physician? How do I be an REI? You're suddenly faced with finding this would be my first job since I was literally a waitress in high school. <laughs> um, and so there's definitely been a bunch of really great, like, podcast people to be able to lean on. I actually came back from an interview yesterday. Um, and so this was definitely the first very early foray into the um, employment kind of piece, but it's exciting that the idea of gainful employment is in our future. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah like, do you know any medical students? <laughs> Let's interview them because it's starting early and earlier. Sorry, I interrupted you, Zaron. 
Oh, no problem. I was just going to say I agree with Victoria in that I think I started having my first conversations back in the uh, SREI retreat in Park City, which was November of my first year. It's just a few months in, still trying to figure out my research project and already talking about places for to, to visit them, to interview, to send emails and have Zooms. And that's it started way earlier. So as Victoria said, when you're a resident, you're just thinking about how to be a doctor. Now, as a fellow, you're already thinking about, oh, what's my career going to look like? What job do I want? What environment do I want to be in? And that's definitely different. And I think uh, something tough to tackle for everyone. What, yeah. what about you, Meg? Are you having these conversations yet or... Yeah, it's just wild. We had heard last fall at SREI that they're going to start coming and, you know, prepare yourselves, get in mind what kind of practice you're interested in, what location, other kind of aspects of that. And I think historically it was really ASRM conference that people had their first interviews. And now that timeline has really scooched up. So we're having places reach out to us as soon as at the end of first year, just like Soren and Victoria had said, and I'll be honest, these two have been my gurus um, (laughs) in terms of what, what I'm looking for in practices and things like that. And even what questions to ask from these employers. I don't think that was the case a, a couple of years ago. I think it was like, you know, you get towards the end of your third year and you start talking about it or mm-hmm. that was before every last place was looking for an REI. I'm not saying that every practice is hiring for an REI, but I don't think any of them are not, not hiring like at the very least. Yeah. They're like, yeah, yeah, oh yeah, we would, we would hire somebody if, if, if it was the right fit at the, at, at the least. And, and of course, many are really actively searching. So at this point, until we see a major reversal in supply and demand, at least, which isn't on the immediate horizon, I think that at this point, first year, like w- once you're in fellowship, you're going to be an REI. Therefore, you are fair game for recruitment. It's like we might as well just try to beat everybody. Because if it's like college football, right? Like it used to be, yeah. Uh, yeah, you just sign the people after they had a stellar senior year. Then, then the big SEC schools are recruiting for the most competitive players and then they start signing them in their junior year and then sophomore year, et cetera. So uh, same thing has happened here. So I want to, I want to go into some of these questions that you have, which by the way, when I have podcast guests, I ask them for three to five questions ahead of time. And I would say at least a quarter of them give me nothing ahead of time. And my producers bugging them for quite, you guys gave me 30 questions so we're not going to get to all of your 30 quads a day, but I love that, that, that continuing education mind frame that the three of you are still in, you are, the three of you have come way more prepared than the vast majority of podcast guests ever do. Um, so let's talk about what are some of the key elements in your job search. And I'd want to just start with, like, I want to do a little bit of, I mean, you can go into detail if you want to, but I want to do, uh, uh, a little bit of a lightning round. Let's start with location. And Victoria, let's start with you. Do you have a location or a number of locations that you would like to be in? Yeah, great question. I originally was trying to go back down to the Southeast because that's where my family was and that's where I'm interested. Interestingly enough, with the Dobbs versus Jackson ruling, that has really put a wrench kind of in that big planning picture. Um, my husband's a dermatologist, so we're looking at big cities with reproductive rights. <laughs> <laughs> So you're now more flexible than you were. Is that what you're? 
Yeah, definitely more flexible than we were. I think there are going to be big limitations as far as certain geographical regions, as far as just density of population need for an REI in that case and, you know, competition and whatever those pieces are. But yeah, big kind of big cities kind of all around the U.S. We're kind of looking very broadly um, and kind of seeing where we land. Um, so how, like, is it still, is it a short list of cities that are on there or are you in on a scale of, of one being, we're going to this exact city, 10 being we're, we're open to Fairbanks, Alaska. We're open to anywhere. Where are you? You know, I heard Fairbanks, Alaska is great for freezing eggs. Um, <laughs> constantly cold. <laughs> and the puns um, have begun. I will say on a scale of one to 10, we have definitely our like top five favorite picks. And I'm definitely looking in those kind of top five cities. So um, like looking at places that have like opportunity that have like the space for potentially my husband's a dermatologist. So he wants to open up a hair practice. So if you guys need any hair advice, I got the man for you. Are, are those um, all like top 20 cities? Are they all more or less coastal? Like, are we more or less talking about the the Boston's, New York's or Chicago, L.A.? Like, is that what we're talking about? Yeah. So I think we're looking at, you know, big cities. And so we had looked at like, you know, Nashville, Tennessee. We were looking at northern Virginia. We're looking at, you know, Denver, Colorado, parts of Montana and like kind of that Montana, Wyoming area. Um, and so slightly, you know, second, like more, not like top 10 biggest cities, um, but maybe areas that have a need that we can fill that kind of give us a nice kind of, I think one thing that's actually really interesting that we've been thinking about more than like the, the go-getter academic, like you have to go from place to place to place. It's really starting to value quality of life and seeing where we can raise a family. Um, and so kind of see where that kind of falls into that has been a really interesting transition of goals for me, which I think isn't the most natural thing for really anybody in medicine because that's not what we're used to. No, I want to see more of that. Let's ask the go-getter academic. Meg, where do you want to end up location? Yeah, well, I love what Victoria is saying about transitioning to this new mentality. You know, our whole career thus far has been get into the next program, match into the specialty, match into the subspecialty with a little less freedom of selecting your location or ideal city. Um, for me, I'm also kind of in that doctor, doctor couple. My husband's a rad onc, so we'd be centering more along the bigger cities where we have opportunities for both of us. Um, we are definitely born and raised Midwesterners, but just like Victoria said, you definitely need to consider um, this political climate change. But I will say um, you can be surprised by the institution you join, by the kind of coalition network you can form. Again, I, I love ACOG staying involved in advocacy. You form your network and you, you fight and stick it to the man the best that you can. But you also need to look at the long term and, and your future. So I would say for us, I'm very interested at staying at a academic institution or a practice that works closely with residents and fellows, um, which can restrict um, the field a, a little better where you're applying to, but um, very open-minded in terms of cities across the Midwest, cities where we have family. We're also very interested in Denver with um, most of my, my big brothers are all moving out that way. Um, so kind of keeping that eye on family where you're going to have that network where there's some academic opportunities. Would you also do the Wyoming thing like Victoria's thinking about and, and, and have that focus on the, the quality of life? Are you looking for a big city partly because your spouse is also a specialist and you have yeah. to, you have, you have two needs to fill. 
Right. Victoria is way cooler than, than I am. I'm not sure I would uh, do as well in Wyoming. I, so you want to be in a, in a major city. You want to be in a little bit a... more city. I think having lived in places to me, Ann Arbor, you know, Midwest is a, is a city. So I think something like Ann Arbor, Chicago, Cincinnati, Denver would be more our kind of. You want, you want to stay generally in the Midwest though? You're, are, are you like, what about New York? What about LA? What? Yeah, that's a great question. I think with the right practice, if you find a good fit that I'd be open, open to anywhere I need to need to kind of keep the whole family in mind, though, for sure. What about you, Zoran? I guess I'm also in a doctor doctor relationship. So there's all three of us here. Um, where <laughs> like my wife, <laughs> yeah, my wife's a maternal fetal medicine fellow, uh, second year fellow at actually University of Cincinnati. So, you know, her mega friends, which is nice. Um, Love, but yeah for my situation is actually a little different and that's because she or her father's private practice is in Boca Raton Del Rey area. Um, and so she's going to go join him after fellowship. And so I have to follow her, you know, we're going to stay together. So I got to, I'm going to follow her and down to Florida and we're going to be in the Southeast. So I'm looking basically between Jupiter to Miami, that Southeastern seaboard of Florida. Um, and so my practice locations were much more specific. I wasn't looking at different cities or even regions, but much more specific. And I think that's kind of one of the reasons why I may have started my job search earlier by asking questions, networking, asking some third year fellows if they knew anybody or had any connections because I knew where I wanted to go. So I didn't want to wait till the end of second year, beginning of third year, where maybe the spots where I needed to go, had to go, were already filled up and taken by somebody else. Uh, so that's why I started my job search earlier. But And I also was looking for not straight academics, but not small one to two person private practice, something in the middle, a kind of private academic model, which REI is a great field for that. We have a big enough practice that you can still do clinical research or mentor residents and fellows, but not have to be either part of an academic center or be too small to do anything like that. This is also where the marketplace for REIs can be in the benefit for someone like you. So you like Boca is not the biggest market, but you're you're kind of you're looking between Miami and Jupiter, and this is a time where uh, a lot of those Miami groups they'll be like, yeah, oh yeah, 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 we need a Boca office. We we're just kind of t- sure, like you and. So that may not have been the case a few years back, but for the fellows listening, I think that, you know, like uh, a lot of the Detroit people do have an office into like, or, you know, like might have offices elsewhere in Michigan or like, say you want to be in Toledo, Ohio. You don't actually want to be in Detroit. Well, talk to the Detroit people, talk to the Chicago people, even uh, talk to the Cleveland people. Like uh, you want to be in, you want to be in, Bar Harbor, Maine, like maybe there's not a big enough uh, area for that, but talk to the people in Boston. And so that's something that I don't think was as feasible a couple of years ago. Uh, I think that you'll have options talking to to some of those groups. So how about, uh, so, so Meg, you straight up want to be in, in academics. How, how hard are we on that? How firm are we? Yeah, no, that's a great question. I think just like Zoran said, um, that REI is a really unique field in that these private practices do still work with residents, do a lot of research, do data analysis within their own clinic and database. And honestly, some of the best 
data that we have in the field comes from those large private practices because they do so much more, so many more IVF cycles and other ART. And so, um, again, I'm, I'm pretty open-minded. Um, I think as long as there are those opportunities to work with learners and continue research. Uh, are either of you also, are either of you really wanting to be in academics or, uh, Victoria and Zoran, or do, or do either of you really not want to be in academics? I will say one thing that really drew me to the field. I sound like I'm about to interview for fellowship. <laughs> um, I will say one thing that I do think is really unique about REI that is really special is kind of playing on what Megan's Warren were kind of saying is, is, is that a lot of practices are still participating in really robust research infrastructures. And I think being in academics for me means a lot of different things. It's not just working with learners, but it's also like staying up to date, having journal club, like being able to stay involved with the most recent evidence that is being published and staying up to practice with X, Y, and Z. And so I think for me, we're joining a kind of middle-sized practice where I can get mentorship and making sure that I get like, you know, library access and have like a continual journal club or team review, like those kinds of academic pieces, I think carry over to a lot of different types of private and private jobs. And I think that with a lot of the local hospital affiliations, you can a lot of the time still work within a private practice structure and still have residents and fellows that you can mentor and kind of work with, which I think is really special. I know that, um, one of my, um, my uncle, like in law, um, is an REI in Chattanooga and his practice partner is, for example, one of the MIGS faculty at a local hospital and is able to work with all of the fellows in that capacity. Um, shout out to Tennessee reproductive medicine. Um, and I think that's, what's really great is because you can have a lot of opportunity, but not have to fit that like cookie cutter academics, because a lot of the challenges that I've seen with the academic programs is, is they're all being bought out by a lot of private equity firms. And so like, even if you join what is, under the academic affiliation of, you know, one program or another, you may not actually be buying into that true academic structure. And so I think finding the right program for me is more important than really like whatever the definition of academic or private or private really is. I think that's, that's it. before I have you answer that same question, Zoran, I wanted to talk about that point, Victoria. I think it's worth every fellow considering this is an, this is an actual data. This is just what I think it could be that the chance, whatever practice ownership you end up signing up for the chances of it actually being that ownership in three years time is less than 50%. Maybe it's 50%. I don't know. It's probably, it's probably somewhere around there. Um, and that's actually something to consider as you sign earlier and earlier, right? Because if you're signing at the end of your third year, then uh, you can have a little bit more of a conversation with the ownership of you know, what, what kind of direction do you plan to go in? If you sign early on in first year, a whole lot can happen in two years. And uh, it, I've, I've, I've seen this a, a bunch of times thus far as like, and I'm going to join this practice right now. Can't wait to join this independent practice. And they're owned by CCRM. <laughs> I'm going to be in academics here. I'm going to the Cleveland Clinic, man. And they're owned by the Maven Clinic. And so, uh, um, uh, so Zara, what about you? Uh, and uh, How hard or not hard are you on wanting to be in the academic sphere? Um, pretty hard on not wanting to be at a straight university uh, academic situation. More so, I think for me, I found that to be a little more uh, 
I guess the freedom of the clinical practice that I wanted to do in the private academic setting. I'm not a big person for grant writing, which I think there's a lot of that in academics. And I think there's people that do that and do it really well. And I'm really happy that they're in our field and I respect them and love them a lot. But for me personally, that would be very difficult. And and when I look at the clinical research that I would rather do, you see all these the biggest groups around the country, the CCRMs, RMA, Shady Groves, U.S. Fertilities, all that, um, they have these huge clinical databases where you can have up to 100,000 patients in your sample sizes, and you can do really great, robust clinical data. And like Megan said, you can drive the conversation, you can change practice patterns, you can help create committee opinions based off of that. And so that's why for me, I felt like I could find an impact within research and still be involved in that academic capacity without being in an academic setting. Um, and I, I personally also have more of an entrepreneurial business side to him. One of my minors in, in college was, was business. And so I do want to go to a place where there's that opportunity for either equity or, or partnership or growth or some kind of opportunity where I can help create and build something together with the practice that I'm at. Uh, and that it would be hard to do at, at other at other facilities. You know, in academic centers, you'd be more so moving up a professorship and becoming tenured. Whereas in a private practice, it's, in, it's a kind of a different situation. That just more so appeals to me. Well, I can still maintain some of that uh, academic uh, rigor. So I'm I'm just hearing that more from people in general that they still want a bit of the involvement with either research or teaching. And so this is probably something that some private practices need to figure out a lot of this, a lot of the larger ones are already involved with academic centers, but many of the smaller ones are not. So they have to figure out some way of scratching that itch, whether it's, uh, you know, it, whether it's teaching the residents or um, whether, whether it's sponsoring some type of research or, or going in on research with someone else or um, allotting for time for uh, their, their docs to, submit an abstract to ASRM. I think that that's something that private practices that aren't, that don't have an academic relationship probably need to consider because what the three of you just said seems to be a recurring pattern from what I'm hearing from fellows. But now let's talk about partnership, which you started to talk about, Zoran. So I'll go back to you, which is on a scale of one to 10, how much do you want to be a partner, meaning someone that owns a piece of the practice that they're working at? Uh, that's a tough question. Um, I think it's anywhere from eight out of 10 to, to 10 out of 10. And the partnership can mean different things. It can be either owning a piece of that practice and of the laboratory or being able to buy into equity of the overall practice. So I, I, all of those options to me are appealing and things that I ask questions about and look into. Um, but some of the practices that I've been talking to that offer these more structured partnership tracks and that have uh, defined milestones of how you get there and what that means. Uh, that appeals to me a lot because then I know what I can do to work to get there, what that means when I get there, what does it mean to be a voting member of the facility, to be able to help to drive the practice, to improve the laboratory outcomes and work with my colleagues where we can actually be kind of a, almost like a family unit in, in making our practice as best as possible rather than either being a number in an Excel spreadsheet or just like one person in a huge conglomerate or even just in a one to two to three person practice where you may get partnership in that, but how much clinical decision-making can an impactful decision-making can you make when, when you're not involved as much in, in research or academics or mentoring others? So for me, it's, it's, it's in, in important. I think the three things I would say that I look for when I'm talking to all these practices are the culture, I really want to be surrounded by great people and great mentors that I can 
actually get along with and and, and vibe with and, and feel like they're my friends and family, not just someone I work with. Um, the ab- ability for opportunity for advancement, which is either partnership or equity or some kind of situation like that. And the ability to pursue some of the endeavors and passions that I have within the field of REI. So I personally would like to have a day a week to do reproductive surgery, fibroids, endometriosis, laparoscopy, robotics, and to be at a practice that will allow me to do that and schedule that into my clinic time instead of just making me do IVF all the time is really important to me as well. So those are kind of the three categories that I look at when I talk to practices. The millennial that wants it all. All right, well, let's let's just talk about that 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 passion and w- in regard to the criteria for advancement, as you were talking about. So, uh, because what I see happening is a lot of associate docs getting to a point where they've been at it's almost always at the two year mark. It's somewhere around there, maybe a little bit shy. Sometimes it goes up to three years, but it's almost always around the two-year mark where they feel like they can buy into the practice or that they should be allowed to. Um, and the partners don't see it that way. They don't think they're in a, in a position to buy it. And it's very often because it wasn't spelled out black and white. This is the volume we expect from you. This is the revenue we expect you to bring in. Uh, and, or maybe here's some of the other business responsibilities that we expect you to take on. So that, I think it's a problem because people are hearing, oh, I can have my cake. I can do my reproductive surgery this time. And, but I want this partnership track and what they're telling me, and they're telling me I can buy into partnership track, but that means that I do have to do as much IVF as possible. So let's talk about what for a second, Zoran, of what, like, when they're giving you, uh, when, when you're talking about a clear partnership track, like, are, are they showing you, this is, these are the volumes that you, like, these are, this is the number of procedures that you'd have, or the number, uh, the amount of revenue that you would have to bring in. And is that commensurate with what you can do while still having a day for your passions? Yeah. Some practices are more specific than others. And I think that that's something that every fellow, if I have a bit of advice to give, is to get really specific in what those details mean and also have um, a contract lawyer review that with you and go over all those details. And don't be afraid to ask those questions because for some practices, they say it's a four-year you know, track mark. You meet the milestone of being uh, board certified or board eligible and then board certified and that your volume is at least this much per year or you're, or you're reaching this productivity bonus. And then you become eligible to be considered for their partnership track. And then you can buy in for that. And this is what the buy-in typically is, or this is what it was these past couple of years for our partners. And so they tell you those defined ways to do it. And that I think I really appreciate. So you can actually have a goal. You can build a game plan in your mind going forward, as opposed to being more vague saying, well, after the three to five year mark, we'll see where you're at. Or, or, or if the partners agree, then yes, you can become eligible to maybe buy into something those, the vague language, I think is something that we should always look at and try to define as best as possible because the ones that are more structured, I think are better for fellows and allows you to really kind of plan, plan your time there. They're better for the practice too. There's nothing to be gained from mutual mystification. It's why my people sometimes think I'm a dick for my sales process because it's so specific. I create so much content about the sales process itself and and then the delivery process because it's like, no, no, no. Like if we, if, if I don't have partners agreeing on what we're doing here and what it takes to do that, I'm not letting you engage in anything. I'm not letting you just create 
what my company does in your mind and then still hold me accountable to that same result. I don't think the mutual mystification benefits everyone. That's what results in, in the, in the discrepancy. You can always still have discrepancy no matter how specific you are, but uh, the more specific you are, the less likely you are to ha- have to enforce something yeah. later on or have to dispute something later on. Definitely. Meg, what about you for partnership? One to 10. Yeah, that's a good question. For me, it's really more about the fit, I would say. And I love how Zoran kind of prioritized his one, two, three. I think, honestly, it's it's so important to be transparent when, on those interviews with that and vice versa, kind of turn the tables to what are you expecting out of me or out of a new hire? What role do you guys really need to be filled? And am I going to be the best fit for that? Because you both want this to be a relationship you might be moving across the country for, and to make sure that this is going to be a long-term start of a, you know, beautiful relationship here. So I would say for me, having a opportunity to become a partner would be in, in more of a private setting would be important. And to have that outlined and have those goals set up. Um, but I would say overall, you know, I'm kind of open to various models here. I can see my, it's, not a, it's one, not a deal breaker for you. Right. I think the most important thing is, um, you know, that longevity, I want the security of having a job that I love. And if that means every day I go to work thinking, you know, I get energy from teaching, I get energy from doing research, having colleagues who want to write papers, which Zorin, I know is so sick of, <laughs> but, but I think, um, being able to have that energy is the most important thing and really loving where you work. Um, having a partner opportunity, I think is only, only a good thing in, in the way that I view entering this process. So, fair. So you're, 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 a bit, you're lower on the spectrum than Zoran. Zoran's not going to work for anybody where he can end up owning, owning a piece of it. And you're open to other, you're, you're, you're interested in it, but you're also weighing in other factors. Victoria, where do you fall on that spectrum? You know, I've thought about this a lot and I would say I'm probably closer to where Zorn is like the seven to nine, eight to 10 kind of range as far as partnership. Partnership means a something that isn't just like, you know, buying into the company. It's like, for me, partnership is really more of like, do I have the autonomy to be able to do the things that I want to do? Can I contribute meaningfully to the way that this clinic is operated in practice? And can I be able to have a say in the really important decisions that are being made? And I think at the end of the day, I mean, you touched upon it, like practices are being bought out so quickly, like the landscape of a lot of different areas are really changing very rapidly. And to be in a situation where you're an associate provider in like a scenario where you know your value, you bring a lot of value to the clinic, say it's reproductive surgery, and you're otherwise referring out all of those cases. I think being really kind of straightforward about that and asking for it's going to be important. But I also don't want, you know, the rug pulled from under me saying that like, oh, by the way, surprise, you're act- we're actually getting bought out by XYZ company in the next six months, we're transitioning all of our leadership and we're all suddenly like an employee model. And I think that's what's really challenging for me is that you'll build a life, you'll build a home, and you'll live somewhere for three to five years. And if you don't have a clear plan of where that next step is going to mean for you, I think that's going to be really challenging for career longevity, because I think a lot of the burnout that we see is that, you know, KPI metrics, like you have to meet these certain like IVF conversion criteria, and you have to do X many retrievals a year. And it very much feels like the industrial IVF machine. And 
you know, I think we as physicians should see that we bring a lot of value in being able to negotiate that earlier on. If that means less compensation to be able to do the surgery that you want to do, if that means carving out like a stake in your contract to say, you know, I'm really interested in artificial intelligence. So I want to be able to have the opportunity to develop that kind of technology freely and, you know, thoughtfully being able to negotiate that at the beginning is kind of what being able to have like a good practice partner is. It's kind of like the philosophical idea, but then also like that whole legal idea. And I really just want to work with a group of people that understand where my mission is. We have a combined vision that we want to bring forward and we want to be able to expand our influence in a more meaningful way. And I think that can be negotiated in a very unique manner in whatever kind of job that you're going to be looking at. Might be worth examining autonomy and flexibility because they're not totally the same thing. Some of the things that you mentioned seem to me like it would be more advantaged as an associate employee. Like if 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 I don't want to be a production machine, I feel like okay, this is what I'm willing to like. This is what I'm willing to work. This is the scope that I also want to be able to do those things and and sign me up for that salary. Whereas if it's like if you're if you want to be a partner somewhere, you're gonna be a production machine for a little yeah. bit. It's like it's it's if if it's something worth buying into, there's a reason why that is. Yeah. No, totally. And I think that, you know, it's all about, I think, what I learned in residency, the most valuable lesson that I learned in residency is if you have a problem, being able to propose a solution to the person that needs to solve your problem is a much easier way of getting something done than to just like, be like, oh, I don't like this structure, but I don't have an alternative, right? And so like, for example, think if you're like about to start a, start working for a practice and say they're worried about your productivity, you want to start doing reproductive surgery, you go say to them, you know, I you know, really love doing reproductive surgery. I know that as my clinic volume revs up, that may not be something that I can do once a week, but in the interim, could you just refer all of your patients as I'm filling my schedule? We can kind of get that money back for our clinic. We can reclaim some of those reimbursements from the surgery that we otherwise would be referring out. And then we could come back and say, you know, as my clinic starts filling up, you're going to get referrals. You're going to get friends. You're going to get all these different, you're going to be drumming up more business than I think that they were necessarily having, seeing as an avenue of revenue and being able to sell that value that is very uniquely you. I think it's not just being a fellow that can do IVF, but it's also like I can, you know, represent us at local, you know, marketing events. I can do all of these little pieces that kind of build into that practice that I think also builds rapport with your practice partners. And I think part of the whole practice partner piece is, is that do your partners trust you and do your partners think of you as somebody that they can lean on to make decisions. And I think I want to be able to build that trust with my partners. Boom. That's bringing a solution that's coming yeah. proactively to make that that's selling your case for what you want to do. You also made another point that I think we should talk about, which is because uh, I think it can go either way. It's something for people to consider. And that has to do with future risk. Are you better? Are you in a better position to to mitigate that as a partner, as an associate? Meaning, like all the people that are selling their practices, and it's like, wait, this isn't this isn't what I I signed up for. I could see it going either way. If you're a partner, you potentially have more. You, you potentially have a lot more to benefit mm-hmm. from. Uh, you know, if they're flipping that, and and the partners uh, are 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 part of 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 who gets to make that. And they're not always, that's one of the things that they can get screwed over on. They, do they get to make that Do they get to vote on that decision to begin with? Um, you could also be, 
you could also straight up get screwed, i.e. Integramed. Like the people that were partners yeah. at those practices got screwed. They're, they had to find new payroll company. They had to, yeah. uh, all, uh, you know, all the people that had, had paid a, ahead of time, you know, they had to make that up. And uh, if you're an associate, that's not really like, that's not coming out of your overall bank. And, and God forbid, if it doesn't work out overall, you just go get a different job somewhere else. Uh, so I could see, I could see that. Like, are you, are you mitigating risk or are you taking more risk on? I think it could be either one. Well, I think it's it's like, what do you think is like risk first benefit, right? Like, I think the associate model, like if you're able to say you have a side hustle, something that you're into, like, say you have a really popular fertility podcast and you really want to like figure out how to really lean more into that. Like that may be better for you to be an associate model, like an associate partner in that capacity. Cause you can work on side hustles. You can have things carved out, have a little bit more time in that capacity, but I'm a strong believer that without risk, there is no reward. And it may be that you take on a big risk and it doesn't necessarily play out in what you want it to be. But the alternative is, is, is that you're going to be putting in just as hard of work on a day-to-day clinical level and whether or not you're going to be able to be the person that's at the, you know, helm of the ship. I think that's the phrase. Um, I think that's going to be per person. I think that's going to be what people decide. And, you know, I've met people who are saying this second phase of my life, I'm done with training. I want to focus on my family. I want to pass my boards. I want to buy a house and I want to like, you know, snuggle at home. I think that's fantastic and just as important as any of these other aspects of your job. But, you know, for people who want to have a seat at the table and make those decisions. I think for me, that's at least where I'm seeing myself now is I want to be able to sit at that table and have a little bit more of a say in how these practices are developed. Because I think the biggest frustrations that I see in kind of these big, you know, corporate like scenarios is that loss of autonomy, you know, and yeah, I think I agree that with the, sorry, that's what Victoria and I've talked about this so many times via text message and phone calls. Um, and and uh, we, we, we talk about how being at that table, being able to participate in that decision-making is so much more, it's better than not being there at all. And I think that can even carry over into advocacy, which Megan can speak about. Mm-hmm. If you're not at the table making those decisions and other people will be making those decisions for you. And that's doesn't work out well in politics and advocacy and medicine. I don't think it works out well in the business aspect either. And if we're physicians and this is our field, we should be participating in this situation. Not everyone will want to, which is totally okay, as Victoria said, but there's some of us that do. And I think that that's, we may be some of the people that want to here in this conversation. And I think that's important because I would rather be there and at least try to put my two cents or or help make a decision or put a vote in um, versus not having that decision taken for me. I would almost regret that saying like, oh, I didn't actually do my utmost or my best to try to change this outcome or influence it in any way. And that's why that, that kind of decision-making capacity is important to me. He is in fact a millennial who wants it all. <laughs> well, uh, so, th- so that's, this is what I'm trying to, to think about because uh, it's like, okay, th- there has to be something in exchange for the decision-making authority. I've had the, I had a, I had a real struggle with my employees <laughs> at, at one point in the, in the past year, which is because one of the things that I do promise them is autonomy. They get to make decisions for their seat. That doesn't mean they get to make every decision about everything. Right. And, and, and so I also learned that I need to be specific about 
what that means. Like, no, I own this company 100% and I am ultimately accountable for every, I am accountable for if, if we, I have to make payroll every single time I have, I have mouths to feed lots of them. And I have an accountability to our clients that nobody has that level of accountability in our organization. And the more accountability you have, the more, uh, the more autonomy you have. So it's like, okay, we want to make these decisions. So what are you taking on? What are you being accountable for in a, in a partnership agreement that, that gives you that seat at the table? Yeah, absolutely. I, I don't think you can want to be involved or be a partner or in a decision-making position or, or seat without taking on some of that responsibility and accountability and, and, and look into those details of that practice and diving into your, your functions, your operations, how that could be better, where things could change, dealing with um, issues at the, with, the, with employees or between patients or bad reviews. Like I think you, have to, you do have to take on some of that administrative work. And I'm not... I'm actually not a big fan of administrative work, but I know I would have to have it. It's going to be part of my life if those are the kind of decisions, if that's the kind of position I want to be in one day. And you're right, you have to, it's going to be some, it's going to be additional responsibility. And so you decide for yourself, is that a responsibility that's worth it to you to have that partnership or decision-making process or is it, is it not? You know, and I think that can change throughout your life as well. We're talking about lessons learned in owning a practice or owning a business in the fertility field and things that you may want to learn how to do or learn about before you go and start your own venture. Another thing is some of the systems that are used. I know people that can give really good recommendations on the different EMRs they've shopped and the the depth and scope of functions. But I would ask someone that you know that uses Engaged MD. If you're not already, if you don't use Engaged MD in your system, you're thinking, I want to open my own office within my own group, or I want to open my own practice. I want to go join somebody else and I want to be able to add something to it. Engaged MD is one of the surest bets that you can do, but you don't take my word for it. Ask someone that you know, because more than half of your colleagues are using Engaged MD and more than half of your colleagues are extremely delighted with Engaged MD because they've got real informed consent. They don't have stacks of papers that people have to sign and then account for and then keep in a file cabinet somewhere. They have true informed consent from patients that have a module at their convenience so that the staff isn't overburdened with questions that they don't need to be getting, that they can help the patient with the attention that needs to be devoted to that patient's case because the elementary, the rudimentary is covered. And now it's just what that patient is stuck on or what's unique to their case that the care team can focus their care on. That's what personalized care is. And more than half of your colleagues have seen the benefit from engaged MD that way. So just reach out to any of them. Hey guys, do you use engaged MD? The people you went to fellowship with, people that you see at ASRM. Hey, do you use engaged MD? What do you think? I hear Griff talk about it but he doesn't own a practice. What do you guys think? And see what they say. But if you want that free workflow assessment, you want to see what other practices are doing, you want those insights that EngagedMD has, and you want to see how your practice stacks against that ideal workflow, 
then you go to engagedmd.com slash Griffin. And you mentioned that you heard them on the show. You mentioned that you heard them from me. And then you're going to get that free workflow assessment. So ask somebody else. Don't take my word for it, but go to engagedmd.com slash Griffin or say you heard it on the show. Say you heard it from me so you can get that free work assessment for you. That's one of the biggest system wins that you could have right off the bat. And you can verify that just by asking people you already know. I hope you enjoy the rest of this episode about things you need to know for the fertility business you might start. I think there's just a couple of different ways that you all can look at your careers, which is uh, everybody talks about being an entrepreneur, like it's the greatest thing. It's not the greatest thing. There are advantages to it. One of the advantages is leveraging systems and capital so that you're not just trading time for money and that so you potentially have the freedom to do a lot of other things. Uh, but it comes with a ton of risk, a ton of spotlight, uh, a lot of obligation. And then another way of looking at your career is, is you're a craftsman and, and craftsmen can also have really great lives because they have a trade that is so in demand that they can call a lot of shots. Then they don't have to have a whole system to, they don't have to leverage a whole system. They could say, this is what I charge. Like I'm this good at it. And Meg, it seems you're a little bit more uh, interested in, I mean, not to, you're, you're still interested in the entrepreneurial route too, but, but you're also open to this, this craftsman route. So what, like, what is it that you also want to be able to do. And advocacy is, is one of those things. So why is that important? Yeah, for me, it was really just being in medical school in Chicago. I did a lot of work with a program called the Midwest Access Project that did some elective termination training. You spent a lot of time at Planned Parenthood. And then coming to Ohio for residency was almost like a culture shock for women's health. Um, but I will say in Cincinnati, it was really incredible place to do residency because it's for those of you who don't know the Ohio geography, it's on the river and the other side is Kentucky. So it's really the first safe haven for most women seeking abortions from the South. So you got this incredible training at Planned Parenthood, which was five minutes from our hospital. And you just heard all of the stories, saw incredible experiences and, women going through just about everything to get there. Um, and again, we have this fetal care center and all these other, um, you know, everything that you hear about in terms of fetal anomalies, medically indicated abortions. And so the Dobbs decision has just been tragic for the women of Ohio. We in, overnight really went from 20 weeks, six days, elective termination now down to six weeks. And like I said, this was the first place for a lot of the South to come to. And so I think not only do you have to, did it teach me coming here that you need to be familiar with the legislation in your state surrounding women's health, but you also have to be a fighter and you have to be vocal on behalf of your patients and share those stories with legislators, obviously in a HIPAA compliant fashion. Um, because nobody else is going to speak the scientific truth if you don't. And so to me, you know, hearing Victoria mention this risk benefit and, and that I'm really thinking of it more from a perspective of, I want to be in a leadership position. I do want to make these decisions for my practice, whether I'm at an academic institution, but whether that's as a medical school clerkship director or fellowship program director or division director, you know, to, to be in the room where it happens. 
is, is definitely very important to me, but whether I take that risk financially to have that possible financial gain, I would say, um, you know, is definitely very appealing and interesting, but I would be seeking, you know, consult from these two on, on that as I typically do with, with, uh, anything business oriented. I mean, for what it's worth, I think Meg is a great testament to the whole idea of finding that passion and like feeling that spark for something and then chasing right after it. Like she, as we always say, she's our advocacy queen because she always has like, guys, sign this petition. Like we have this thing going on. Like, oh my gosh, we're trying to fight and protest and do all these things. But I think that for me is like, that's the autonomy, right? It's like finding that passion doing that passion and then making something out of it. And I think that's the true spirit of entrepreneurship, right? It's like finding something that you can have like a very specific niche and focus and being the best in that field and doing that. And I think if you bring those skills and that focus, then you can really like one of the biggest things I learned in fellowship is that you can't say yes to everything and you shouldn't say yes to everything. And it's okay to not have you're like eggs in every basket, even though we like a lot of eggs, hashtag eggs. Um, <laughs> but it's like, you know, you can't say yes to everything. You can't do everything. You've got to focus what you're going to do and market yourself from that perspective. And, you know, being partner for Meg, maybe being clerkship director or fellowship director, and that in and of itself would bring value and joy in that long, like career longevity. And I think for us, as at least for me, up to this point in training, it's been blinders on just clinical practice, patients above everything, you know, you're in this hyper-competitive academic environment, it's all about publishing papers. And then realizing in this last year doing research, there's so much more to the field that you can bring that isn't necessarily the most traditional medical aspect because the traditional medical aspect is becoming something so much more different than what it was 15 years ago. And being able to navigate that in job search, but also like life goal searching, I think has been the most kind of interesting revelations, at least for me, when thinking about that philosophical kind of partnership role, like, what do you want out of your job? What do you want the freedom to be able to do? And out of your career, I would say, and more on a more philosophical global aspect, medicine, I think if you become complacent, right, medicine becomes run by someone or something else. And as physicians, burnout increases, I think a lot of that burnout comes from just either us being becoming complacent or being forced to be complacent and so other people are making decisions for us other people are dictating our time where what do we do anything from reimbursements to how much advocacy to do to what the laws are and if we want to make medicine you know a healthcare oriented you know physician and um, provider run system we got to be less a little bit less complacent I mean, at least that's what I feel like I want to be involved and that's what drives me and I get the passion from that to be part of it to help make it our own again, um, instead of just letting either big businesses or politics or other other outside forces drive healthcare and medicine, if we can make any change. Well, that can quickly become that can quickly become perverted, though, can it? Like corrupted that because like it's like then the business person really could just like the doctor can become the business person, like and uh, it's 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 not immediately obvious where it's like, okay, that's the clinician. That's the business person over there. And, uh, and especially when you can also, as we see in marketing all the damn time, you can use ethics. You can even use or what's perceived as ethics 
to drive a marketing message. Uh, it reminds me of the Simpsons episode where Mr. Burns, uh, he gets involved in recycling for some reason and like he's just using it to dry up the oceans or something. And Lisa says, he, he, yeah, you're, you're so evil. And when you're trying not to be evil, you're even more evil. I, I was, we're seeing this all over the place in business. It's, some of the, the marketing messaging uh, is 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 like it's just totally dishonest it's, it's perverse um and i don't think we're immune to that in the in the rei field so i want to do i want to go down that rabbit hole eh, i want to ask you like uh one other question going back to the basket because victoria talked about the the basket and maybe that will bring us back to this of like like the, this mission and, and message um because i've asked you one question out of your 30 questions and looking at this sheet it's not just 30 questions because each of them are like five questions so all like all the things that we talked about were from one question although we probably we, we did cover a lot uh that is you know, right and we, to, we we covered I what i wanted but I want to ask you, there is another question that I'm glad you all put on here, which is, do you, do you see yourself in any role outside of medicine? So maybe that ties back to what we were talking about, like of, of keeping the mission whole. Um, and, and Meg was talking about advocacy, but that can really mean anything. Like what roles, do, uh, it can mean anything. It can mean sitting on a board that has nothing to do with reproductive medicine. Uh, it could It could be not actually practicing medicine, but sitting on advisory form for, for a Silicon Valley company. What roles do you all see yourselves outside of medicine? Well, Meg Sachs for president, 2036. <laughs> Go. <laughs> um, VP right here. You got it, yeah, Victoria. Right? I'll be your vice. <laughs> um, I mean, all jokes aside, I guess for me, Oh gosh. I think that for me, I've always had this, this is like totally, so like thinking totally outside of medicine, I've always wanted to learn how to bake like really fancy French pastries. So I feel like in the second life that I'll have, I'll probably go to like chef school and learn how to be like a patisserie, like person, like a pastry chef and like the more realistic kind of like logical field oriented way. I kind of imagine myself pivoting into um, more of a data science space. I think that one of the biggest uh, untapped, you know, really untapped and truly un understood like power of big data sets and clinical processing is going to be thoughtful developments of artificial intelligence and data processing to be able to better diagnostics, to be able to better die, like better, like genetic information processing. And I think it's going to be revolutionary towards the ability for us to have image processing. And so I imagine myself either doing my own kind of startup in that capacity or potentially like joining a advisory board or serving in that capacity, kind of feeling how I can disrupt the field in a different way that is going to be bigger than me seeing patients myself. I think that is what I imagine my long-term legacy to be and what I hope it to be, because I think we have this one short life on the world and I want to be able to make the biggest impact and get the most people pregnant as I can. Yeah. I, I, I agree with Victoria in the sense that um, there was a question on there that I think we put like, what, what do you think was the biggest things coming up in, in fertility or in REI, or the next biggest innovation or whatnot? And I think artificial intelligence and genetics are those two sectors that are really, you know, booming in our field. I, AI being closer to and like genetic engineering and all that being a little further away. But both of those are have such powerful capacities to make a lot of change in people's lives. But also, like you were saying, Griffin, there could be a double-edged sword. You know, things in different technologies may not be, mar they may be marketed as being great, but they may not actually be as great. 
or we may be talking about when we get to the point of actually AI dictating care or uh, genetics being able to be modified in embryo. Like, what does that mean ethically? And I think there's these crazy ethical questions and business questions and medical questions that need answering. Uh, and I see myself as hopefully one day becoming knowledgeable enough and enough of an expert in my field that someone would trust me to be part of uh, a consulting group or a CMO of a company or an advisory board or somebody, people to sit down to help make these difficult decisions and have these difficult discussions. And I would like to you know, trade myself and gain my knowledge to get to that point one day. That would be really amazing because I do feel like we have these epic situations and uh, questions that we need to answer coming up. And if I can be a part of that and at least contribute in a positive way, that would, I would look back at my life when I'm retired or just sitting on a beach somewhere in Bali, hopefully, uh, like I did something, you know, um, uh, beyond just like Victoria was saying, being in my clinic and taking care of patients, which is extremely important and, and the utmost importance in medicine. But that's how I would want to try to see if I can add to the field. Yeah, I want to maybe just remark on that because it's amazing how uh, it, subspecialist physicians, you're so you're so educated, you're so trained, you're so freaking smart and, and, and truly are exceptional in many extraordinary in many senses. And then in other senses, it's like as human as everybody else. And it's amazing <laughs> when I'm in a room of, of REIs, it's, it's a natural human tendency that likely comes from evolutionary biology that when you see someone getting more you really want more. And because so much is coming into our field right now, it's, it, it, it's, it's very easy for all right, to say like, I want that. And I would just caution people a little bit. Yeah. You've worked really hard. You work really hard. You're, you're going to be okay. No matter what you do, you're going to, you're going to be all right. Remember that the vast majority of human life uh, up to this point throughout history, and even in great many parts of the world today, is extreme poverty, and yeah. and even by the standards of our country, you're gonna be you're gonna be doing well no matter what. So I think it's just something to keep in in mind as for all the the for all the REIs for all of us uh, that it is our tendency to look at people and be like. Oh they gave him what he's, he's getting what for being on that board. He sold his practice for what? And, uh, it's like, you, you know, focus on some of the other things as well. And, and maybe you compare yourself to, uh, your ancestors as opposed to the other colleague all of the time. I know and just your, your competitive breed, especially REIs. So you're going to do it some of the time. Um, but, uh, like, how about, can I swing you? that towards, towards our patients for a second too? Yeah. yeah. I mean, you're so right. I think, unfortunately that is kind of the human nature, but we feel that for our patients too. And I know I've talked to these two about it. And one of the most frustrating things about our field is the accessibility mm-hmm. and really lack thereof for such a huge proportion of the population. And I mentioned earlier, oncofertility, huge passion of mine, as well as just fertility preservation for transgender population, among other kind of medically induced infertility or iatrogenic infertility. And so, I mean, 
to kind of swing together the two questions of what's your passion outside of your clinical practice and Zorn bringing in the, where's this field going in the next decade or so, I would say increasing access. I'm going to take it back to advocacy for a sec and just say, you know, currently we have 12 states that have fertility preservation laws, or in other words, mandating insurance coverage for that iatrogenic infertility. And to me, this is, this is not enough. And I can tell you, Ohio is not one of them, but you know, we're seeing the state mandates increase now with 20 states and we're seeing IVF coverage in 14 of those states. And I think that's going to go up. And I think in the next decade or two, maybe even sooner, we'll see a much larger patient population. I think that's part of the reason why they're coming for the REI fellows earlier and earlier is anticipating this huge increase. But um, I know the three of us will, will be fighting for our patients and, and increasing that accessibility. And, and that's going to be hopefully part of something that I do outside of my clinical practice. And I think that's really important to always like think of is that I think of as you accumulate more resources, you also get to be the person who delegates the utilization of those resources. And I think what's, what you know, Meg was really thoughtful about kind of touching upon is even being able to practice right now as a fellow in a mandated state, you know, even the state mandates aren't perfect. And there's a lot of insurance hoops you have to jump through each case. You're, you're spending a lot of time with patient, you know, authorizations and pieces like that. And so there's a lot of work to be done in the field that, you know, disrupting the field isn't just like, you know, the big bucks and making millions of dollars. It's like allowing, it's like starting a genetics company and allowing people to have cheaper, more affordable carrier screening so that they can actually know what carrier screening is and being able to offer that at a price point that they can afford instead of a thousand dollars a panel. It's increasing access to patients who otherwise would be afflicted with genetic diseases and offering genetic testing from that capacity and like being able to really utilize the resources information in the best, most thoughtful way. And I think that, you know, any physician that I've ever met always, you know, is thinking, what about my patient? How can I get the best care for this person? How can I get around these hurdles? And I think that that's something that uniquely positions, you know, physicians to be leaders in ethical development of the field because we're always having that patient in mind. And that may not necessarily be as easy to see for, you know, politicians. I know that's been a huge challenge with Mm -hmm. being able to bridge that gap of politicians being able to see like, what does it actually mean to have a six week abortion ban? And how is that gonna actually impact the patients that you're seeing on a daily basis? And I, so I think having a bigger voice and being able to be at that position is going to be hard work. You know, it's going to be seeing thousands of patients and having good rapport and good outcomes and doing the best for them. Because at the end of the day, that's what we do. We are craftsmen, but yeah, craftsmen with like an idea for bigger. It's our job to kind of sift through all these things too. these different technologies. You know, you go to ASRM every year and there's all these new booths of this brand new technology coming out, but how much of it is actually helping patients? How much of it is more marketing and a marketing gimmick? And what does it actually mean? And sometimes it's years of using that device or that idea before people are look at the outcomes and say, this actually didn't help anybody. And so that's what we need um, physicians that are patient-minded, patient-focused to be there at, at these advisory boards, at these tables, and to, to discuss these things to see what will actually be beneficial, what won't be beneficial, what is the research back, what's evidence-based, what may not be evidence-based, but we don't have any other treatments for it. So maybe we should go down that avenue and being able to make those decisions for a patient so they get the best possible care and, and the best possible access as Meg and Victoria were saying. 
clearly I've been doing these conferences wrong. I thought the best technologies were the ones that gave out the best sperm pens. There's something to be said for that. Well, one of the things I, I say uh, frequently is that it's hard to provide. It's hard to, to have a valuable business. I mean, it is hard to have something yeah. so valuable that it is worth getting more money than than what you're what you're giving away. It's so hard to be able to do. Are you meaning actually the opposite? I think I'm trying to say is that you have to give away so much value that it's it's worth more than the money being received for it. And in order to, to actually like deliver something so high in value, all of the systems and people that need to be it's hard to do. And uh, and I take that obligation so seriously as a business owner that when we're not doing our best as a firm, we're just taking people's money. We're just I hear REIs say uh, they all say they're going to add to the pie, but we just feel like they're they're just taking away a piece of our pie. And when you fail at business, that's what you're doing. You're just taking away a piece of the pie. When you succeed at business, you are adding to the pie. Uh, and it's so much harder to do than to say, but I want to conclude with, uh, let's just, talk, each of you have interviewed at this point, each of you are talking to people, uh, names, specifics. Now I know you're not going to give those, but, uh, give us some insights So just, what are you paying attention to? Like, as you're, we, we've talked about the, like what's important to you, but I'm talking about when you're interviewing with people, like what are the impressions that you're getting from interactions? What is it that you're paying attention to? Let's conclude with that. Dr. Sachs, we'll start with you. Sure. I think something that has really stood out to me and kind of gives you that, that nice feeling like, oh, wow, this could be a really good fit is when they say, we want to make sure that this is where you're going to be happy. You know, when you start to get into, well, which clinics would it be or which, you know, other kind of details, like Zorin would say, really that importance of the details, they'd say, you know, this is, we want you to be happy. And that really stood out because I feel like as, as a resident, as a fellow, maybe it was more like, no, no, I want you to want me. What can I do? And it's really nice to kind of have this table flip this time. Um, and I think it feels a lot more comfortable than those kind of stage. We did, we were the first, right? I think we were the first COVID interviews for fellowships. So we were right. so used to the Zooms on Zooms and those kind of, you know, which answer, which story am I, am I telling for this question, which just feels silly after a while. But these interviews, it's like, who do I want to be my partner? Mm -hmm. This could be for 20, 30 years. Um, so I think that's important. And I did also want to include that I don't want any fellows out there feeling like, why haven't I heard anything yet? I think um, the three of us have, you know, gone to conferences. I'd be thinking that. I'd be thinking that. You anyone suck. Else. You suck if nobody's called. No. <laughs> uh, well, if nobody's called by the end of the second. And it, there's something to be said for that, Meg, which is be active. The more active right. you are, the more opportunities right. you have. Right. And that Put isn't just for, there. it's not just for fellows too. I, there's been a couple of people that I know are trying to hire fellows mm -hmm. and I've invited them on this show. And, uh, and there's, uh, you know, like they just don't, it's like this, this, Fellows are listening to the show. You're trying to, I, I'm giving you free advertising to talk about right. whatever. I, 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 
the people that are really good at uh, recruiting fellows, I'll just make up. I don't want to say any doctor, so I'll just make one up. Dr. Angeline Beltzos <laughs> is so good at recruiting fellows is because she's all over the place and she's super generous. And and there are other people like that. And uh, it's, it's tougher for some of the smaller people to do that. But the more active they can be, the more likely they are to be able to be connected with people like you. And and the same thing is true for you guys. The opportunity begets opportunity. You are active at MRSI. You ended up on this show. That's going to result in a couple, uh, you know, a phone call or an email from somebody here or there. Yeah, also it, it was you met somebody from the arm group, which is going to lead to another opportunity. So, uh, no, I would be a little concerned. Like if you haven't gotten a call, uh, maybe you should start being a little bit more active. I will say, I think a lot of people wait until ASRM of their second year. And I think that's a really great touchdown point for a lot of people because it's really easy to connect with people. So if any of the fellows out there, I knew for me, like thinking of ASRM as like kind of a deadline or kind of like a touch base point of like putting out feelers and networking, I think was a good place to start. And I definitely think that we're really early um, in kind of looking at the field, but soon, you know, time flies and you're going to be graduating sooner than we, I mean, hopefully <laughs> you're early. And this is the least busy time of your lives for the, at least the five years on either side of it. Right. Like, uh, you were busy cool. as hell in, re in residency and yeah, this is a brief window. You're going to be busy as hell again. And, uh, so yeah, it's not like you're, it's not like you're behind the, the eight ball. If you're, if you, if you haven't talked to anybody by, by second year, but, uh, but the more you put yourself out there, the more opportunities you get. Zoran, what are you paying attention to? Yeah, I pay attention to again. The big for me is culture. Uh, how the how the different partners talk to you know interact with one another. How they say their practice runs together. How they say that they consult. It's a big deal for me when I talk to someone at the actual practice and they say things like, "Oh, I want to have an issue. I just walk down the hall to my partner, or I call this person, or if I have a tough surgical case, this person's there to help and back me up." Just it just shows me that strong culture of collegiality and, and togetherness and collaboration, which collaboration is a big word for me. Megan will hear, has heard me say it a million times. And when, back when we met in the NIH, that's like all we did was collaborate on a bunch of things. And now Victoria and I are also doing some stuff. So that's that, that collaborative togetherness environment is big for me because I think as a team of uh, physicians, we can do so much more as a team of physicians. And of course, other practice providers together, we can do so much more than an individual and so it's important for me to be part of a great team. And so I pay attention to that team environment. How are they with one another? How, do the, how does the practice run together? How cohesive are they? How much do they help each other out? And, and I get that from having actually personal conversations, not just from the interview, but I'll find people at the practice and email and say, hey, do you have time for a phone call? Half an hour here, half an hour there, and just speak to me one-on-one -on -one so that I can get them one-on-one -on -one and really hear from them what they, what they think, what are their thoughts what are some of the pros versus some of the cons? And that goes back to what you said, Griffin, about being active. If I had an advice for residents, incoming fellows, new fellows, or current fellows now, it's that don't be afraid to just kind of put yourself out there to network, to have conversations with everybody around you. Even, even if you're introverted, which may be harder to do that, just put yourself out there. We have such a great field of so many people that want to help, and they're, they'll be excited that you're excited about the field and passionate so walk up to that person after the presentation or go to the poster presentations or um, 
when some guy that you recognize from a podcast walks up to you at the pool at PCRS, you know, talk to that person. I think that was you, Griffin, when I met you for the first time. I was like, wait, I know your podcast. And that's how our first conversation started. But just be active in those conversations because they will continuously lead to more and more connections and doors and situations. And we can help each other that way. I mean, that's what Megan and I did. She asked me for some help with connections in Chicago, people that I did research with. And I was just like, yes, let me text that person right now about you and how awesome you are. And that's how it worked out. And so keep having those conversations and just be active. We're here to help. Victoria, did I ask you what you were paying attention to or did I interrupt you with with calling people losers? (laughs) Maybe a little bit of both. Um, I will say the things that I'm looking out for, definitely the same layer of collegiality. I definitely want to be practicing with people that I just love working with. But I think for me, it's going to be the little details of clinical care that I think are going to be the make or break it. I, you know, I want to be in like a medium sized practice. I don't want to be by myself. I want to have a little bit of mentorship. I don't want to be driving to 55 different satellite clinics, you know? Um, and I think what's really important for me is journal club and team review and being able to like lean on my practice partners to learn and get better. Because I think the great thing is, is that you're going to pull together people that have been trained in all different places in different times. And I think that you can learn a lot and make your own practice like your own. And I think for me, staying ahead on the literature, on the new findings, the new technology is going to be something that's going to be more challenging as we get into the nitty gritty. And I want to be in a like environment that pushes me forward and allows me for like professional development in whatever capacity that they may mean and being able to be around the right people to do that and be able to have good mentors in that capacity, I think is going to be what's the most important. If you go to Montana or Wyoming, you are absolutely driving to six different satellites. You're, <laughs> you're, you're driving an hour just to go to the gym. Doctors Jang, Pavlovich, Sachs, Megan, Zoran, Victoria, in reverse order, thank you so much for coming on Inside Reproductive Health. It's been a pleasure talking with you all. Yeah, thanks thanks so much. You've been listening to the Inside Reproductive Health Podcast with Griffin Jones. If you're ready to take action to make sure that your practice thrives beyond the revolutionary changes that are happening in our field and in society, visit fertilitybridge.com to begin the first piece of the fertility marketing system, the goal and competitive diagnostic. Thank you for listening to Inside Reproductive Health.